Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, August 6th, 2018. Uh, this program. I'm already shaking my head. And by the way, this is a short week. Pirate Christian Radio Conference this week, so... Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by evangelicals is far from biblical. And there's like no excuse for this, because when it comes to sound doctrine, it's it's like the easiest thing ever. And I mean that because it's open book. Yeah. As long as the book is open and you're checking the context and, you know, fact checking to make sure that what your pastor is saying is actually what God's word says and reveals and teaches and means, which for the most part, not all that hard. Uh, then you know you you will never be duped, and so we 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 kind of specialize in pointing out the obvious. <laughs> but sadly, uh, and many of you in the audience know exactly what I'm talking about. The the obvious isn't as obvious as you would think it is, uh, which is one of the reasons why so many people are are being deceived so egregiously with such regularity. And so, yeah, we, anyway, you, you kind of get the idea. All right, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Hope you're sitting down. Um, at the beginning of the year, uh, of this year, <laughs> I'm going to kind of get to it circuitously. Uh, at the beginning of the year, we began publishing on YouTube r- regularly uh, videos as part of our offering for Pirate Christian Media and what we offer. So expanded out from the podcast, and uh, we have segments that are not available on uh, the podcast that are only available on YouTube. So, And uh, we've noticed as, the, as we've grown over the years, over the year, that um, 
our YouTube audience is kind of its own thing. Um, there is some crossover, but many of the people that are now following us on YouTube, they they, uh, they have never heard of Fighting for the Faith, the podcast. And so early in the year, um, I covered in one of the earliest dumpster fires that we have. And, you know, so you have to go back into the archives on YouTube if you want to find this. A woman by the name of Kathy Walters, who in the video that I covered with was talking about the owl anointing. Mm -hmm. How apparently she had been slain in the spirit in a particular church. And the only thing she could say was owl. Yeah, I'm not making that up. And so I'm pointing you to that because uh, I I don't think she's ever made it onto the podcast itself. So I think this is her inaugural uh, uh, appearance on the Fighting for the Faith uh, radio program. So uh, we're going to uh, be listening to Kathy Walters as she is now jumping into the water spirits water. Yeah. Uh, yeah, see, uh, this was what? When was this published? Yesterday? Yep, yep, yesterday. So, yesterday she put a video out about um, water spirits. You know, Jennifer LeClaire's got a whole book coming out on this topic, and um, well, Kathy Walters has jumped into the water, both feet, when it comes to water spirits, and so she's going to regale us not with actual biblical doctrine or teaching as it relates to so-called water spirits but um you know she's going to try to get us to purchase her ecd which has teachings on water spirits and then regale us with a story i think it involves gambling in reno and things like that yeah i'm not making that up and uh, and then uh, we'll head over to uh bethel church in new zealand and we're going to listen to a fellow I don't think we've covered before. His name is Andy Pigot. And, um, yeah, um, so uh, the the message I've titled it in my notes, Being a Koei Tree. Um, and I think I pronounced that right. Koei or Cody trees are trees that are native to New Zealand. And we're going to hear him openly talk about his connection with Bethel Church in Redding, California, and refer to them as having, you know, apostles. Yeah, it's just kind of strange. But And we'll listen to this weird message that has no grounding whatsoever in Scripture. And then to, you know, somewhere in there we'll take a break. And then to round out our numero uno, uh, we're going to listen to Michael Maiden. Yeah, that would be uh, Patricia King's pastor at uh, C3 Church San Diego. Uh, talking about curse breakers, curse breakers, and uh, the super special anointing, Elijah double portion anointing that uh, C3 Church apparently in San Diego has. And then our number two, uh, taking a total left turn. And I, I mean, left, like a hard turn, left turn. We're going to listen to Jason Morris of Austin New Church uh, and his sermon titled The Gift of doubt yeah the gift of doubt wish i were making that up but i'm not so buckle up strap in uh, put on some safety gear you're gonna need it and uh in fact you know i'm now that i'm thinking about this 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 opening segment is so bizarre it, it behooves me to actually play one of our warnings so let's do this let's get a have a warning and then we'll get into the program proper here we go 
Warning, the Fighting for the Faith radio broadcast contains spiritually volatile content. This material is not suitable or recommended for those with itching ears or those dependent upon subjective emotional experiences. Fighting for the Faith is not responsible for feelings of disillusionment or disappointment with your man-centered, seeker-sensitive church. We are unable to compensate listeners for time wasted listening to their pastor's narcissistical sermons or serving in their church's redundant, ineffective ministries. Listen at your own risk. If after listening to Fighting for the Faith you experience a genuine gospel awakening lasting more than five hours, seek the help of a qualified, faithful Bible-teaching pastor. Always take Fighting for the Faith with an open, English-sanctified version Bible. Results will vary. Use as needed. Some discernment required. Yeah, there we go. There's your warning. Here we go. Hallelujah. That's right. Robert Tilton and Hubaba Kanda. So we're heading over to the YouTube channel of Kathy Walters, uh, who was made famous in one of our dumpster fires regarding the owl anointing. And uh, she has jumped into the water spirits, water, both feet. Yeah, I hope you're sitting down. Here we go. Hey, duckies. Um, I'm just duckies. She called us all duckies. I, I guess that makes sense since we're talking about, you know, water spirits. CD that I just released, put together yesterday. And uh, it's really important. I want you to get it and pass it on or get one for a friend or something. Get the ECD right now. Um, but it's really important because, you know, uh, God's, I'm sorry about this light. I don't know what to do about it. Um Okay. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. She's clearly um, recording from her home, and she's got a very bright, you know, living room light on that's behind the camera or behind her head, which means it's shining right into the camera. So you know, um, generally you want to put your uh, lighting in front of your face, not behind it. Yeah. So. It's really important right now. God is just revealing, showing people the whole area and realm of water spirits. Water spirits affect you so much, much more than you realize. Um, they're in all different people. It's been kind of like hidden, almost like people have been blinded. But God's showing people now how to pray and what to pray for with regards to water spirits. So would you get my CD? They invade a lot of churches. They come in. Folks, there there are water spirits invading churches, according to Kathy Walters. They're very dangerous, and all we need to do is purchase her ECD, and we can we they can be unmasked in your congregation. Shouldn't bring people into deception. I've even seen uh, water spirits impersonating people's angels. 
over the church or over someone's... She's seen this. This is the lady who uh, who fell under the owl anointing. ...history. We'll try to turn this person to be better. Okay, so um, I'm going to tell you this story because lots of you have been on mission trips, going on mission trips, um, been on many mission trips, and I've had to pray for so many people. You wouldn't believe that have been on a mission trip and the water spirit attached itself to them. Um, now, I had a friend, some friends here from New Zealand a couple of years ago, uh, Margaret and Russell Knights, and they'd been missionaries for a couple of years in Malawi. And uh, so they were staying with us, and Margaret came um, with me to a few places, you know, to minister. And so I was in Reno. We were in Reno. <laughs> the light. It was just following me. Um, we were in Reno, and... On the Sunday night after the meeting, we um, couldn't find a restaurant open near, so we went to the um, casino to eat. But now, the casino there, the one we were in, the whole theme of it was like Neptune and mermaids and water and fountains, so we just walked past it. Right. So in Reno, there's a casino with an aquatic, neptune kind of theme, okay? And think, you know, too much ate, left. And then the next morning, Margaret and I got on the plane to come back from Reno. And the plane was just, you know, they'd closed the doors and everything. It was just kind of slightly pulling away. And Margaret suddenly bent forward and said, I feel really ill. So I put. Yes, clearly a water spirit attached herself to your friend. Yeah. They are so dangerous in that way. I've been praying in tongues. So I didn't know what was going on, really. The flight attendant said, shall we stop the plane? And I said, no, it's okay. I, I just said that in faith. And so I just carried on praying for Margaret. And then all of a sudden, Margaret sat up. And she said, oh, my goodness. So, but the thing was, she was absolutely soaking wet. Her T-shirt, her jeans were not damp. They were at, she was absolutely soaking wet. So so there you go. I mean, yeah, sheer sign of a water spirit. If you, you see watery tentacle-like footprints in your kitchen, yeah, yeah, a water spirit has invaded your home. Now, she had to stay like that till we got to Atlanta and she could go to a hotel and go and change. Um, but we couldn't figure out what on earth is going on. So then she said, I feel so different. I feel like almost like a different person. So what had happened was we figured out that when she was in Malawi, she had picked up a water spirit. Um, you know, people, meanwhile, sometimes they go to places, people give them things. You don't really know what's attached to it. I would advise anyone that went on a mission trip to get prayed for through a water spirit. Yeah, yeah. You, so not only do you need malaria pills, you probably are going to need to get a special, you know, NAR um, water spirit bondage breaker declaration thingy done over you. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so what happened was when the plane was leaving Reno, that water spirit in Margaret decided. It wanted to go and join its buddies in the casino. How, how did you figure that part out? Did you have a seance and 
talk with the water spirit and say, you know, why did you leave Margaret? And the water spirit said, well, my buddies were in the Neptune Casino doing the enchantment under the sea dance thing. And so, you know, I, I just, I, I wanted to be with my buddies. The fountain with Neptune and the mermaids and all that. So it left her. And then, but the thing was, she didn't even know she had it. Um, and then another, I can tell you hundreds of stories and there is stories on my CD. Please get my ECD. Yeah, you, yeah, this is stuff you can't find in your Bible. You can only get this from Kathy Walters' E-CD on um, water spirits. Water spirits, on water spirits. You need to listen because they're invading a lot of churches. They can be very Christian. Um, so this other girl, um, I have hundreds and hundreds of stories. That some of them are on the other CD that I'm going to advertise. Um with this probably, but um, I was in Australia and it was the end of a conference. Um, <laughs> I look so misty, but maybe that's good for you. Maybe I look better when I'm misty. Um, so I finished praying for everyone and there was this, you know, that nice uh, presence of the Lord that hangs around. But there was a girl sitting on the floor and um, she was kind of making these kind of like moaning noises a little bit. And so the pastor's wife, did, did she have the owl anointing? She said to me, could you pray for her? That's my daughter. And she wants to go back to Tibet. And I'm like, Tibet, she's married. She's got a couple of little kids. It sounded strange to me. So I went over to her and I, you know, I said, what is the problem? So she said, I just keep feeling so drawn to Tibet. And I said, well, I think you have a call to Ireland. <laughs> And she said, my husband's Irish. I can't believe he said that. He wants me to go to Ireland all the time. So I said, why do you want to go to Tibet? She said, I just feel feeling drawn, drawn. And I'm like, I said, have you ever been to Tibet? She said, yes, I have. She said, I was in Tibet on a mission trip a few years ago. So I said, well, I think when you were on that mission trip, you, did, you went somewhere or something, and you picked up a water spirit, and now it wants to go home. See, those spirits, they like to travel, they like to visit around, they go on trips, but then they want to go back again. So sometimes people feel drawn back, and that's why the spirit they picked up wants to go back to where it came from. So so they, they get uh, homesick. So water spirits get homesick, and they, they want to go back. Yeah, okay. Remember that most demons aren't, can't move through the air. They're earthbound. Yeah. So they have to rely on a person, a thing, an object. Um, not many of them are can move through the air. Most are earthbound. Remember that. I've seen uh, water spirits on a plane. Um, I saw one actually when I left LA. I was going somewhere and there was a spirit like this on the um, side, you know, where they make the coffee and everything. And so uh, a water spirit was casually looking casual near a coffee maker. Right. Uh, I said to the Lord, what is that doing? No, tell me it's hitching a ride. Oh, I see. So the Lord revealed to you that water spirits hitch rides because, you know, demonic things can't travel through the air. Got it. I said, should I do anything? He said, no. You don't have to chase every tiny demon, you see, because, you know, you just can't do that, can you? Be running around like a 
chicken with its head cut off. So, um, where did I get to now? Oh, the car. So, yeah, yeah. I said, I think it's a water spirit that wants to go back to Tibet, where it came from. But it's just what's me, just using you to get there. So I said, what, what did you do? Did you go anywhere? She said, well, the last night they invited us to a special hall. Um, they called it a sacred hall or something. And so I, I felt a bit of reluctance, but, you know, we were guests and I didn't want to offend them. So I went to the, got in the pool with them and everything. Well, guess what? That's where that spirit came from. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the water spirit came from that pool. Yeah. She she clearly is an expert. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, you can find Kathy Walters on YouTube and her uh, website address is kathywaltersministry.com. Yeah, if you uh, need some help, you know, getting rid of, you know, water spirits and stuff. You can't find this in the Bible, but hey, she she's clearly jumping on uh, the same bandwagon that Jennifer LeClaire has been on. Uh, talk about making merchandise, teaching for shameful gain, things that ought not to be taught. None of this is biblical, and it's just absurd. Moving along. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Elaboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. All right, we're heading down to uh, New Zealand and uh, in Bethel Church in NZ, and uh, we'll be uh, listening to Andy Pago, and I've titled this "Being a a Koei a, a Koei uh, Tree," and I, <laughs> the reason I picked this is just because of its sheer interestingness, due to the fact that he talks so openly about his connection with Bethel Church in Redding, California, and literally says that uh, Bethel, Redding, that uh, they consider the folks there uh, apostles and prophets, and yeah, and that they're somehow you know connected there, and the, the DNA of Bethel is uh, part of what's going on there. So let's head to Bethel Church in uh, New Zealand and uh, listen to Andy Pagot talk about being a Koei tree. Here we go. Wow. Did you capture that, that before the Europeans had come here, the Hongi was, they were classed shoulder to shoulder and just Hongi by the pressing of noses. There wasn't the handshake in there. But when the European people came, they introduced into the way of welcome across this nation to this day, many Hongi are done with a handshake at the same time as the Hungi. And we believe that that is a symbol 
of something of the heart of the Father. You see, the handshake, did you capture that? It represented from ancient Greece. I'm a warrior, but in my right hand there is no weapon. Look, I come in peace and I come in care. How do you do? How are you? I care for you. And the hongi, we exchange and breathe the same breath. We are brothers. The breath of our creator. We acknowledge the genealogies that you're standing on the shoulders of forefathers who have gone before you. We acknowledge that and we acknowledge you. And here we are face to face together as brothers sharing the same breath, the breath of our creator. But did you notice that in the new handshake, in the new greeting, in the new hongi hariru, and the new welcome, nothing is lost. Right there is the handshake. Perfect. Yeah, this is a sermon, by the way. And Andy here is um, really waxing eloquent uh, about the, the handshake and the hongi greeting where you breathe each other's breath. Nose to nose. Perfect. Right there is the hongi. Perfect. Nothing is lost, no compromise, yet a whole new way of greeting one another and welcoming each other. And that each of us in this room, no matter, no matter your ethnicity, is welcome in this nation. You're welcome. And that you don't need to compromise who you are. In fact, if you compromise who you are, That is not the dream that the Father has for our nation. Because you being who you are gives permission for the other person to be who they are. Right. So if I be who I is, then other people have permission to be who they is. Okay. And so you don't need to put on a show and try to pretend to be somebody that you're not. But your very act of stepping into who you are gives others permission to shine with who they are. And nothing is lost. In fact, there is a synergy and a togetherness and this is something of the dream of the Lord. And I'm burning over many different nations, but of all the nations... My heart burns brightest for this nation, New Zealand. I want to see this nation swept into the kingdom. I want to see a a new reformation like what Nikki was talking about. Sweeping through. I want to see revival in this land. And I believe this, that we are in pursuit of what I'm calling a Cody church. Because the Cody is a symbol, as well as the Hongi handshake is a symbol of something of what God is wanting to do in our nation. This is a type of tree, by the way. So this tree is a symbol of what God wants to do in NZ. Got it. That we were sent from Bethel and Redding, California. Here's the interesting part. And they are our mama. They are our mama ship. We love Bethel Redding. And we love the fathers, the prophets, the apostles. 
We love everything that they stand for and who they are. We have the DNA of Bethel in our hearts. <laughs> yeah. Now, unfortunately, I got to pause here and uh, go to our first break. And uh, when we come back, we will clearly spend a little bit more time listening to this. But uh, wow. So, uh, yeah, a little bit more as he discusses this. And we're not hearing a biblical teaching here. He's apparently just preaching as he feels the spirit moving him. <clears throat> yeah, so if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, and we will be right back. A little bit more of Andy Pago. And uh, then we'll be hearing from Michael Maiden as he preaches at C3 San Diego. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss him. We'll be right back. No sneaky squid spirit formed against us will prosper. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Put on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen The Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. He twists God's word. He puts on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen The Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. He's a heretic and he's okay. He's keep all night and he lies all day. God's word, I take your tithe and spend it on private jets. Have you seen my bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. He twists God's word, he takes your tithe and spends it on private jets. Have you seen his bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. He's there, taking okay. He's all night and he lies all day. God's word, I write bad books that will land you all in hell. I'll never say I'm sorry, cause I'll be there as well. He twists God's word, he writes bad books that will land us all in hell. Hi. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck. Because we now, at Pirate Christian Media, have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twistbusters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that um, water spirits aren't a thing. Yeah. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can do so by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, And let me thank you for your support. We truly and honestly cannot continue doing what we are doing here without it. All right, let's head back to uh, Bethel Church in New Zealand as we listen to Andy Pagot kind of waxing weird. And it's just fascinating because he just so openly talks about their connection with Bethel Redding. Uh, that they that their DNA is their you know that Bethel Redding's their DNA and they're into their prophets and apostles and stuff. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes you wonder. Maybe, just maybe, the uh, that Bethel Church is part of the, uh, you know, the so-called New Apostolic Reformation. Hint, hint, Michael Brown. I think you get what I'm saying. But uh, let's go back to New Zealand. Here we go. It's our tribe. The, what they're speaking. Yeah, so Bethel is their tribe. Speaks deeply into our heart for on earth as it is in heaven and the presence of God is real, accessible, available. And we can see God do wonderful things today in our world. Amen. And that everyone has access to this. Everyone has access to this presence to see miracles and has a part to play in bringing heaven to earth but uh, ha- has a part to play in bringing heaven to earth what i like to think sometimes of the church of america to be like a redwood tree church because then california there is those beautiful and this is going to be like the main theme of his sermon you know what kind of what kind of tree church are you you know are you a redwood tree church or yeah yeah this is weird listen huge sequoia or redwood tree. We've been into the redwood forest diner up in Humboldt County in California. And we've seen the majesty of those trees. And they are magnificent and they are giants. And I love those trees. And I've been, I just got back from a holiday in Australia. And there was just eucalyptus trees. Native to Australia, and I love the eucalyptus trees, and they stand so strong in that nation as the sequoia stands so strong in California. And I know my ancestry goes back to Britain. And in Britain, they have the great oak, this British oak that stands as a symbol of great strength. And I love the oak. And I, each of those three trees we could take into Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I honor those trees. And we can plant them in the soil and they would grow. And they would grow strong. But you need to know this, that they will not grow as strong and as tall and with as much mana as the Kodi, native to the soil of NZ, the towering Kodi tree is the tree of this nation, a native tree. And it is the most ultimate soil and climate for the Kodi is to grow in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And if we are just going to take the cookie cutter from Redding, California and be a sequoia tree, that would be great and we would grow. But I believe that God has called us to be a Kodi. I believe that God has called us to be unique. I believe that God has called us. What does it mean that God has called you to be a Koei tree? I, I don't. I don't understand uh, what that even means. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and Jude says that we are to preach, proclaim, teach. You know, kind of, and you know, the faith once delivered to the saints. I don't know what you're talking about to be authentic and genuine to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Is anybody with me on that? And that in that expression of Cody, each of us in this room find our unique expression of who we are. And we can with great mana on the... What do you mean with... uh, 
You ah, this is so weird. I have no clue what he's talking about because none of this is biblical. What text are you exegeting? What biblical doctrine are you teaching? Yeah, they, they, he's got Bethel Redding's DNA running around inside of him. And uh, clearly it's like a virus. It's hijacked his preaching so that he's not preaching God's word at all. Inside of us, strength, step into who we are and not need to be a copy or a shadow of the other nations. Because if we're, all we're doing is copying the other nations, that's the best we can be, a copy. It, isn't Christianity about the kingdom of God that transcends our different nations? Yeah, I'm just saying. But if we knew who we were as Aotearoa New Zealanders, we would never want to be a copy of any other nation. Because who we are as a nation and who we're called to and what we're called to do and be is phenomenal. Yeah, how do you know that? You're born in New Zealand, you are blessed because you have a significant calling. And there's not too many of us. So just being born in New Zealand guarantees you you have a significant calling. See, that was my problem. I wasn't born in NZ. Bummer. Uh, that's why I don't have a significant calling. For it to be melted away. Amen? So I want to share just four quick simple facts about Cody. Go ahead. Yeah, share them. Yeah, because who wants to hear anything from the Bible during a sermon, you know? We are, I'm believing that our church is called to be a flagship church as a Cody church for our nation. And we're blessed living in Northland because most of the Kauri in our nation are here in Northland. In fact, on the west coast there, Waipawa Forest, three quarters of the nation's Kauri. Three quarters of our nation's Kauri are in Waipawa Forest. That's a lot of Kauri, right? They have those two big Kauri over there. Tane Mahura, Tamatua Ngahere, Father of the Forest. Which, by the way, that, those two trees see 50,000 visitors every single year. 50,000 come to see two trees every single year and gaze at the beauty. Yeah. So... <laughs> What does this have to do with the Bible and Christianity? There's nothing else you can really do. And I also believe this, that when we step into the Cody tree, yeah, we don't do anything to entertain. Yeah. You just look at beauty. You look at the mana. You look at the strength. You look at the size of these beautiful native Cody trees. To the tune of 50,000. And if I believe that Bethel Church New Zealand, when we step into this, people will come by the thousands just to behold the beauty of what the heart of our nation is longing for. Yeah, as soon as they step into the thing he thinks that God is speaking from his heart for Bethel NZ, that, you know, the, the people from all over will just come and gaze at the beauty 
of this because, you know, the Kohi trees, right? So, yeah, okay. Because we don't want to be a copy of other nations. We want to honor them. I have no idea what you're talking about. Value other nations. What the strengths that they have to give to us, we say thank you and we receive from. But we need to be an Aotearoa church. Amen? Yeah, so they, they need to be one of those. Apparently, we've never had them before, but they need to be one. Okay. And so, um, Tamatua Ngahiri, that giant of a Kodi tree, they say has 50, 50 different species of other plants growing on it. 50. It's like a mama for 50 different plant species living on, like a safe haven for 50 other plants. In fact, the, guard, the, the branches of the tree, there are gardens on the branches of the tree. Not just one garden, but there are gardens upon gardens upon gardens. There are, there's not just one Eden. I'm speaking of the garden, not my daughter. There are Edens upon Edens upon Edens. On the Cody tree, safe in the branches of the tree. And the third, the third fact, so there's a couple of facts I've given you. Third fact is someone um, wonderfully stole my iPad. So I don't, my, my notes have been stolen. <laughs> I'm trying to think of my third fact. Let me go to my fourth fact. Yeah, that's this. It's awkward when you know you, you're not actually preaching from a biblical text. Yeah, it's easy to lose track of where you are and the point that you're making. Now I got my third fact. When they are densely populated together, the Kodia together, their lateral roots will fuse to one another. Yeah, whoa, yeah. I mean, there's some spiritual significance right there, man. Whoa, roots that fuse together when they grow laterally and things. Whoa, no wonder you want to be a church like that. Since when did churches get to pick the kind of tree they want to emulate? So that two trees will share one root. They're fused. The roots are fused to become one. Yay! And when one Cody, if it is cut down, if the other that its roots are fused to is not cut down, it will resurrect. It will sprout new life. Isn't that amazing? Oh, yeah. yeah. No wonder you want to be like that tree. Yeah, I think you kind of get the point. And this is you know, no, no joke. Um, just in previewing this sermon, we're almost halfway through it. And he has yet to break out a biblical text. And this was the sermon for that was posted for August 2nd of this year. Yeah. Indeed, you've got Bethel's DNA running around inside of you. Yeah, yeah. They have an aversion for the, you know, the actual written word of God as well. Uh, and <laughs> rightly handling it and correctly preaching it and actually 
working with it in context. I, I think you kind of get the point. All right, uh, moving along, I'm going to play this for uh, Michael Maiden since he's so closely connected to Patricia King. Here we go. <laughs> Down at an English fair, one evening I was there When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts There they are standing in a row Big one, small one, some as big as your head Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Every ball you throw will make me rich there stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball, roll a bowl a ball, singing roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. Got a lovely bunch of coconuts. So we're heading over to C3 Church, San Diego. Special guest. Preacher Mike Maiden, uh, yeah, pastor of uh, Patricia King, and uh, he's there preaching about uh, curse the the curse breaker anointing Elijah double portion thingy that apparently you know whoa I mean yeah you thought that uh, you know the folks there in New Zealand you know Bethel Church New Zealand they they get to be a coe tree you know uh, that uh, but no C three San Diego they got something way better than that going on yeah. Michael Maiden is going to explain that to us. Let's get to it. Here we go. Second Kings chapter two is um, our main text today. Second Kings chapter two, and it's a story of when Elijah was leaving, and Elijah was then going to go forward in life. And my whole thesis today is there's an Elijah double portion anointing on the C three movement in San Diego. Yeah, yeah, that's how he starts his sermon off, and uh, is it any wonder this guy and you know is the pastor of Patricia King? But um, wow! Uh, so because he's going to read, you know, Second Kings chapter two, that means that the C three movement itself, you know, this is uh, by the way headed by none other than Phil Pringle, and uh, Maiden is at Jurgen Mathesius's church in uh, San Diego, but uh, they've got a double portion Elijah anointing thingy going on. I mean, does your church have one of those? Yeah, yeah, you you don't go to a good church then, apparently, because, you know, you don't have the double, Elijah double portion, you know, anointing thingy. Diego, and there's always a purpose, you know, God never sends the anointing to someone who doesn't have a purpose to use it. Or it's not. Uh, what? Not awakened. So there's a very purposeful anointing on C3 because you've attached yourself as a movement to the heart of God, which is to transform cities, which is to bring God. So, so the reason why they have this double portion anointing thingy is because they've attached themselves to the heart of God. Really? Do you have a text that says that? Ay, ay, ay. I mean, really. God's kingdom to the world. Hey, 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 you guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Is one of these guys your husband? Next service. Okay. 
Lindsay was telling me that her husband played guitar. I was trying to guess which one, but I'm next service. Came to pass, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 of Second Kings 2, came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah up. And so Elijah's about to, he, you know, he's captured in really a, a whirlwind, a chariot of fire. That Elijah went with Elijah from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elijah, stay here, please, for the Lord sent me to Bethel. So I, I'm just going to kind of fast forward that part. So um, the old man knows his time is up. The young man knows his time is about to come. So transitions are so important that both generations get it. And um, that they sense the baton being passed. They sense what God is doing. And um, so the, 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 the older prophet said to the younger prophet, I'm going to keep moving. You don't have to keep moving with me, but I'm going to move. And the younger guy says, no. If I don't move with you, I don't inherit what you leave behind. See, we inherit what we honor. The text doesn't say that, nor does it even remotely mean it. How are you coming up with this? And the young prophet said, I'm going to stay with you. And and so he does these four things that I'm just going to fast forward them because I want to get into some other things. But... There are, there are four stops in this progression. They're at Gilgal, and Gilgal means rolling away. And it's a portrait to me of salvation when, when by the blood, like our communion today, our sister did a great job, when Jesus rolls our sins away. Anybody here? Listen, you don't need another reason other than Jesus to be happy today, okay? If, so, so Jesus is enough. He's, he's forgiven our sins. He's, he's made heaven our home. He's filled us with his spirit. He's made us new. He's healed our bodies. And just everything. So they're at Gilgal, which means salvation. And I praise God for every church in the San Diego metropolitan area that's preaching the salvation messages of Christ. We're all- oh, I'm glad he, he, he's, he's thankful for them. But, you know, they're they're just ordinary churches. They don't have the double portion Elijah anointing thingy going on for them. I mean, why would anyone want to go to a church that's so normal and so, uh, you know? I mean, if, I mean seriously, you, you could choose to go to a normal church. They preach the gospel, and we're thankful for that. Or you can go to, you know, a C three movement church, and you know they they've got the double portion Elijah thingy going on for them, and. Yeah, there's practically no comparison. I mean, yeah. All the same family. There's only one church in San Diego. That's the Church of Jesus. That's every born-again person. doesn't matter if they call themselves Lutheran or Assembly of God or C3. We're all in the same family, okay? So we all belong to it. So it's it's awesome. But, but yeah, for- and there's the but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. We're all in the same family, but... Yeah, yeah, your your church doesn't have a special anointing like, you know, C3 movement does. So you are just out in the cold, just doing ordinary things, hearing, you know, that boring word of God. And you're, you're just not in on the thing that the heart of God that God really wants to do. And you haven't honored the right things. So, you know, you, your church hasn't received the double Elijah anointing upgrade, you know, so, 
Bummer for you. For, but we know by, by revelation and now by experience that there's more than salvation. The salvation's the most important thing. It's the cornerstone of everything. Yeah, but there's more than that. Yeah, you got you know, the double portion anointing thingy. But there's more for you in Jesus than just being saved. And so he said to him, I'm going from salvation to Bethel. And Bethel means house of God. To me, it's a portrait of the church. And so aren't you glad for the local church? And, and I praise God for every gospel, evangelical, Jesus-honoring, Bible-teaching church in the San Diego area. We're all on the same team, and they're all making a difference. They're all doing awesome things. Amen? doesn't matter what they are. But, yeah, it doesn't matter what they are, but. They're not our competition. They're not our enemy. We're on the same team playing for, the, for Jesus. So thank God. And thank God. That you have, that the, the, that the Lord showed you the revelation of the church. Listen, you never grow so spiritual, you no longer need the church. So we need people, well, I don't need the church anymore. I got my own walk with God. No, it, it's not that you need the church, but maybe the church needs you. We, we're all connected, and as long as Christ hasn't come back, the church is God's number one plan to bring his kingdom to mankind. So the church is God's hope for the world, the local church. So pray. The, the, the church, Christ isn't the hope of the world, but the church is. Do you have a text that says that? Praise God for the local church, but the local church is not the end. It's the means. Okay, so the local church isn't, isn't why Christ died. The local church... Notice how he's just struggling here. You know why he's struggling? Because he's ta- talking off the top of his head, and he's not preaching from a biblical text. The job of the pastor is to, I know this sounds redundant, but to preach the word. He doesn't seem to quite get that, but okay is the platform but the end is the kingdom yes. so so they're, they're at Bethel and he says to them um, I'm going to go past Bethel to Jericho and you can stay here you can be happy and content in the local church make your friends grow in Christ have Bible studies d- develop a, a Christian community or you can move with me to Jericho and Jericho means sweet place and to me it's a portrait of the Holy Spirit's gifts and graces and so, aren't you grateful that you found out that you can talk in tongues, that you can prophesy, that you can see miracles? You have a book of miracles here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, your, your church glows in the dark. Aren't you happy about the fact of how much you glow in the dark? That every gift of the Holy Spirit is for every person in the body of Christ. That, that is so not true. And the scripture, of, you know, like clearly and unambiguously, says that. I mean, in of all places, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And 1 Corinthians 12 makes the case. Just read it in context. Uh, I'll start at verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, another the utterance of knowledge. 
Uh, and, and according to the same spirit, to another, faith by the same spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another, the working of miracles. And then Paul goes on to say, starting in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the, uh, of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Uh-huh. And he goes on and explains how these different gifts make us different body parts within the body of Christ, Christ being the head. And then he ends off with this, wonderful, uh, you know, very clear set of questions that in the Greek, because the uh, uh, the particle may, every single one of the questions that Paul asks must be answered in the negative. And he asks the question, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. <laughs> so what Michael Maiden just said here, that all the gifts are available to everybody, uh, flat-out hogwash. And you don't have to be a cessationist uh, to uh, to note that. I mean, you can be a continuation and recognize Scripture is very clear on this point. That's wonderful news. Praise God for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And because God's going to do miracles today, I saw someone being healed some kind of injury, you, you're athletic, you have it, but you've had an injury. Oh, he's getting a download right here. Athletic injury is going to be healed right there in C3 San Diego. Uh-huh. Both to your knee and to your foot, and it's really, uh, it's not healing as fast or properly. And I just declare that God's healing you right now, and you're going to walk out this. So he's not praying. He's just declaring God's healing you right now. I, we don't know who this fellow is or... Gal, but I mean, they're being healed right now. Let's play strong, okay? So praise God for all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But but they didn't stop there. He said to him at Jericho, I'm going to Jordan. And and you can stay here, Elijah, but I'm going to go to the next place. And, and so Jordan means crossing over. And to me, it's a poor... So Jordan means crossing over. So therefore, we could just allegorize it and spiritualize it to mean something, you know... That uh, applies to C3 movement today. Yeah. Portrait of the kingdom of God. The reason why I'm saved, the reason why I'm in the local church, the reason why I'm spirit-filled is so that I can bring God's kingdom to mankind. See, your job... Yeah, the job of the Christian church is to make disciples. Yeah, and that's what Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. Job is not your destiny. It's the platform for your destiny. Your job... Uh, it, it is the is, is the means to bring the kingdom of God. So so if you're a chiropractor, bring the kingdom of God to people. If you're a restaurant owner, you're everything, Pastor. <laughs> bring the kingdom of God to people. Amen. So the ultimate goal in everything, Christ talked about it nonstop. The kingdom of God. Pray this way, your kingdom come, Father, your will be done in earth as heaven. So God's will is to make earth look like heaven the best we can. No, that's not what that means. That is not what that means at all. This is a total abuse of the Lord's prayer. Can to bring heaven to earth. So, so salvation brings me to heaven. The kingdom brings heaven to earth. What are you talking about? It brings heaven to earth. Yeah, I'm sorry, but uh, you're pulling the eschaton into the present. And, uh, you know, Christ, when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead on the day of judgment, yeah, everything's going to get burned up. 
and then he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And that one, uh, the new the new earth will be without sin, and God's dwelling place will be with man. And so, so at, 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 at this crossing point, this Jordan, that's where we lose a lot of believers that they're happy and they're beautiful little. So we lose a lot of believers because Jordan is the crossing point. What? Churches that their whole cities are on fire going to hell. They don't care because they have good church services. But the assignment of C3 isn't just to have good church services, it's to change the cities where you have. Yeah, see, the C3 doesn't have just good church services. But they, their assignment, they have a super special assignment. You know, uh, you know, a mission from God, should they choose to take it, is to change the whole city of San Diego. Have churches is to transform the culture. Culture transformation. No, that's not part of the mission of the church. Job of the church is to make disciples. Preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. But, uh, yeah, what Michael Maiden is saying, this is standard NAR pablum. So this is important because if we don't attach to God's purpose, we 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 forfeit God's provision and God's power. We- oh no! If we don't attach ourselves to this purpose, we'll lose provision and stuff. <laughs> no biblical text teaches this either. I talk about a completely man-made doctrine. Wow. We don't get the full measure of what God would do because we're not attached to God's heart. But when we have God's heart, we see God's hand move. And God's heart is to transform. God wants San Diego to be what he created it to be. The devil didn't create the city. God did. And God has a redemptive purpose for the city. And that's... Yeah, this sounds like a form of dominionism to me. For this city to look like Jesus, this city to manifest the graces of God. So they're walking and they come to Jordan, they cross the Jordan, and then it happens. The chariot comes. But just before that, the old man asked the young man, what do you want from me? Ask anything and I'll give it to you. And, And the young man said without pause, without hesitation, I know what I want. I want twice as much of what you have. And, and, and so there's something in the heart. Come on, all you young people. There's something in the heart of this generation that says, I want more of God than I've seen others have. So what does this generation have to do with that text? Answer, not even one thing. Good night. So that hunger is deposited in you because God wants It's an invitation to what God has for you in the next season, which is more. God has more for the church than what we settled for. But if we stay hungry, we're going to get it. Okay? If we stay So if you stay hungry, you'll get it. What are you talking about? Hungry. I want more. And so before, before they finish that conversation, there goes Elijah. He's carried up in a... Chariot of fire, whirlwind of heaven. And when Elijah goes up, something unusual happens. His, his mantle, representing his anointing, comes down. So there goes the person, here comes the mantle. And it's just this simple point, anointings never leave the earth. God doesn't claim them back to heaven, he doesn't... 
Oh, totally man-made here. And so this is proves that mantles never leave the earth. You see, you can get the Billy Graham mantle. You can get the Lonnie Frisbee mantle. They, these, they are, this is another NAR doctrine. Good grief. To need them. They're here. The Holy Spirit's here on this planet to empower God's people to fulfill God's purpose, which is to bring God's kingdom to every nation, city, family, every region, every place. And so there are mantles. And what C3 has done in San Diego, it picked up a mantle from God. And there's a double portion. There's an Elijah anointing that Pastor Jurgen and uh, an Elijah anointing mantle thingy on Pastor Jurgen. Oh, man, wow, because those anointings never leave the earth, you know. And uh, Leanne, to trance... Who has the Jesus anointing? Because Jesus is the anointed one. That's what Mashiach means. That's also what Christos means. He's the anointed one. So who did Jesus give his mantle to? Huh? Form the culture. They have a double portion. And so everyone that's attached to C3 is going to be walking in this unusual double portion mantle. And, but it has a function. It has a purpose. It has a consequence. It has a design from God. And so, as, um, as, as, so he picks up the mantle. And as soon as he did, he tore off his old clothes because he was no longer satisfied with where he's been. The, the, the awesome thing about having encounters with Christ is you don't have to live off of yesterday's meal when you get a brand new meal today, when you have something fresh from heaven. Uh-huh. Yeah, who needs that Bible? We have all kinds of fresh stuff. Just falling from heaven on us now through the C3 double portion Elijah mantle thingy that um, Jürgen Mathesius apparently has. Wow, Um, that's just bizarre. Has nothing to do with biblical Christianity, but worth the listen, at least in that sense. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition... Or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pyre Christian. Quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to head to Austin. Uh, Jason Morris and the Gift of Doubt. Open up your Bible to Hebrews 11. We'll be there for a little bit. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Your words have no power to create reality. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag 
filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Austin New Church. Jason Morris presiding. The name of the message is The Gift of Doubt. Now, I'm just going to kind of put it out there this way. When you do not properly distinguish between law and gospel, you have no certainty of your salvation and People literally, in order to deal with that awkward, difficult conundrum, somehow overcome it by saying that doubt is a good thing. That doubt and faith are practically synonymous in order to you know, somehow alleviate their feelings of anxiety due to the fact that they're uncertain about their salvation. And this is a result of the 
improperly distinguishing between law and gospel and not placarding Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution for our salvation. It creates people who think that they can somehow ironically embrace doubt and see it as a good thing. Doubt is what undermines faith. Uh huh. Think of Peter walking on the water. He sinks. And Jesus said, why did you doubt? Why, you know, yeah, so keep that in mind as we get into this sermon. So without any further ado, here is Jason Morris and the gift of doubt. It's good to be here. My name is Jason. Uh, for, we have to constantly introduce ourselves. There's so many new faces every week that it's kind of a fun problem, but um, I'm the guy who will consistently say, oh, you look new. Have you been coming? Yeah, for about six years. I'm like, mm, Sorry. <laughs> It's good to be here. These are the dog days, y'all, right? This is how we send Michigan home. We arrange several back-to-back 100-degree days. We do this on purpose. Y'all don't think it's city, city council like does this on purpose. Like We arrange this, right? Just so everybody leaves us alone. Big week for us. We're graduating our second kid from high school. Yeah, yeah. Super excited about that. That's going to happen today when it's about 104. So we're praying for a little reprieve. If you're praying for some sun, I rebuke that. We're hoping to uh, have a good party. It's been a good, it's been a good couple weeks. Um, school's about out, and for some of us, that's like a building sense of dread. Kind of like when you know your AC unit's starting to go. You can hear things clanging. I caught one of my kids recently, I kid you not, dropping rocks into the AC fan because she thought the sound was cool. I'm like, you're the reason for insurance, right? Anyway, um, it's good to be here. So we're dropping back into our series called Jesus Quotes the Old Testament. It's been a lot of fun. Gary told me that he's been enjoying it. Trey's been enjoying it. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I've been enjoying it. It seems like we're kind of meandering. Not sure where the end is going to be, but it'll be sometime in 2020 maybe when all your credit cards time out on Amazon Prime. That only happens to me, right? Happened this morning with dog food. I'm like, that's a bummer. Sorry, dog. That's an old credit card. I guess you're out of luck. Anyway, um, so we're dropping back into the series where Jesus quotes the Old Testament. And, and in contrast to last week, I hated the text last week. It was difficult. Um, this one I love. And you're going to see why. I love this one. Today, if I hit the target I'm aiming for it in 22 minutes, uh, I'm going to get to, in some meaningful way, give you permission to do something you're already doing. Which, if you didn't know that, that's actually the greatest of all spiritual work, is to give you permission to do what you're born to do anyway. So wherever this idea comes in that we got to sit in buildings. Why would I need permission to do what I'm made to do or who I am or, you know, this is weird. By the way, Jason here, as this uh, sermon will unfold, you'll see that in reality he is a philosopher, a postmodern. He's very, uh, very tightly related in his thought patterns to uh, the emergent church movement. You know, church growth program in Austin in the summer is just have AC. The church will fill up, you know. But I don't know where the mythology comes from that we think that we got to go listen to some white guy tell us how to do life, and that's going to be the transformation. The reality is, is if I hit the target today, I get to give you the permission to do what you're already doing anyway and maybe feel a little less sheepish about it. So there's my high lofty goal, right? It will be my privilege if I do this right to give you the permission to ask the questions that you're already asking, to validate your doubt, and remind you that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Okay. Whoa. Now, now we're in the nubbins here. Validate my doubt, and doubt is not the enemy of faith. 
Yeah, actually it is. And it's important for you to understand what faith is. We'll do a little bit of work in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, head on over to Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, as we're working our way through this, uh, we're, we're going to pay attention closely to not only what the scriptures say as far as how they are defining uh, faith uh, in this passage, but also what some of the words themselves mean. And uh, so uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is where we'll begin. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction. Now, the Greek word alegas is, you know, you could, there's several different meanings that you can ascribe to this, but one of them is certainty or conviction. Yeah, so faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's going to make sense due to the fact that the Greek word for faith uh, is the Greek word pistis. And pistis is about trust. Trust. So doubt is the opposite. It's the antithetical of trust. Now, if what he was saying is true, then we would expect that faith and doubt can be kind of interchangeable concepts in Scripture. But if you want to test that, then really all you need to do is when you see passages that talk about the importance of faith, replace the word with the word doubt and see if it makes sense. And so Hebrews 11.1, faith, or we'll, we'll change the word, see if they're synonymous. Doubt is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Mm-hmm. For by doubt, the people of old received their condemnation. By doubt, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By doubt, Abel offered to God a more, you see, it doesn't work at all. In fact, it does violence to scriptures, a very clear definition of what faith is. And so, again, you know, consider Peter, he's uh, he's out walking on the water, and, you know, the reason why he's on the water walking is not because of his great faith. He's on the water walking because he doubts that it's Jesus. And that's kind of the important thing there. And so when uh, when Peter starts to sink, help me, Lord, he calls out, and the Lord rescues him from the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus asked him, why did you doubt? Uh-huh. Why did you doubt? So, in fact, let me read out part of that text. So, uh, in fact, why don't we take a look at the story? It's in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, I'll start at verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat uh, by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, 
I am. Now, the Greek is, the, is ego me. He says, I am. He's invoking the divine name of God from Exodus 3. Do not be afraid. So Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Began Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him and saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Uh-huh. So you can see that, you know, little faith and doubt kind of go together. <laughs> go together. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. So what Jason here is doing is basically giving us postmodern philosophy. Mm-hmm. This is not biblical doctrine or biblical theology that we're hearing from his mouth. And you'll and the, the clear sign that this is the case is that he's setting everything up without a text. Yeah, that's that's a bad thing. And he claims he's going to get into a text. He's going to get into the text about how John the Baptist uh had questions and some doubts regarding Jesus and somehow try to turn that into an embrace of doubt as somehow being a form of, and these are his words, you'll hear him say it, a form of wonder. Yeah, this sounds like he's been reading too much Rob Bell and not enough Bible, but we continue. Okay, so if you're taking notes, which I know you're not because we don't do that anymore, you're going to hear the podcast if you need to hear that again, but here it goes again. Doubt is not the enemy of faith, it's actually integral to a growing faith, and if understood properly, it can be welcomed as a faithful guide along the journey of faith. Now, immediately, we just need to ask the question, where does Scripture teach that doubt is a faithful guide in the quote-unquote journey of faith? Notice, now we've turned faith into a journey. Faith is trust. Faith is belief. The opposite of, of trust is what? Mm-hmm, yeah, doubt. So again, he's not dealing in biblical categories. He, like I said, he's read way too much Rob Bell. Doubt and faith were always meant to be together. Some of you are already like, I, this is not evangelical. Yeah. Which biblical text says that? Enough for me. We won't make it awkward if you need to leave. If not, hang on. You see, I would argue that many of us operate under the assumption that faith is some kind of a conclusion we come to, right? There's a point in history where we arrive at this conclusion and therefore... Yeah, uh, changing the actual definition of what faith is into something else. Yeah, I mean, this is a straw man. That's not what faith is defined as in Scripture. Again, see Hebrews chapter 11. Or everything after that. Now, we can say that that's faith. We think of it as a destination, when in reality, I think it's more like a road trip. It's a journey somewhere. Sometimes You, you think. You think. This is speculation and, and philosophy. This is not biblical doctrine or theology. Sometimes you're heading in the right direction. Sometimes you take a, a wrong turn. Sometimes you stop and pick up corn nuts and a Red Bull. Those two things actually don't go together. Corn nuts are from the 80s. Red Bulls, never mind. But we think of it as a destination, and what I'm here to encourage us today is through the words of Jesus and through a quote through the Old Testament is to set the table so that we might understand faith as more of a road trip, something that we're moving in the right direction, but there's no arrival, there's no conclusion, there's no single point along the way when we say we're there, right? We think of it as some sort of a magical moment of clarity, a little bit like the moment at the power team if you're old enough when you were a teenager like Trey and I to remember what that is. Most of you don't. But it's that moment when you take the red pill, right, as opposed to the blue pill. 
It's that moment that we think of, we side, we, we ally ourselves with the cosmic forces of good. We think it's a moment. And in reality, I think it falls very short of what Scripture teaches us about faith. We think we make... Now, what he's describing, by the way, is conversion. People being regenerate. Be, people being brought to repentance. And here's the thing, is that that is a work of God through his means of grace, and there are many examples of people who were heading in one direction, and the gospel and the message of Christ and him crucified for their sins grabs hold of them. God the Holy Spirit brings them to repentance and faith, and they take a whole different direction. So he's he's basically poo-pooing the biblical category of conversion and regeneration. That's a, that's a solid biblical category he's trying to erase there. One-time decision, and we just drop into a Thomas Kincaid painting. And I, boy, I hope you don't know what that is. All right, now I'm going to back that up. This is another straw man argument, uh, you know, as he's trying to deconstruct uh, the concept of conversion. We think we make one-time decision, and we just drop into a Thomas Kincaid painting. And I, boy, I hope you don't know what that is. Yeah, I don't know anybody who believes that either literally or figuratively regarding Christianity. I'm dropping all my Christian bookstore notes along the way. We should know better. You know, when life begins to nibble at, gnaw at, even tear at the edges of those naive assumptions, we're forced to cash in those early adolescent notions of faith for something more realistic. I would say something more elastic, something that works with the unfolding of life. We really Now, since he's dealing with a false definition, consider this, that since we are called to repentance, uh-huh, change of mind, which would oftentimes involve uh, remorse for our sins and belief in the promises of God for the forgiveness of our sins, and, you know, and then doing what Christ said, take up our cross, follow him to expect persecution and things like that, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't teach us that uh, Christianity, you know, turns your life into, you know, basically some super special version, you know, of a Thomas Kincaid painting. Far from it. And so the idea then is since we're trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, right relationship with God, and we're trusting him for eternal life, uh, th- then the idea then is is that regardless of what life throws at us, uh, we can't, you know, our faith remains intact because we're not in a, some weird Pollyanna-ish type of way trying to hang on to an idea of this life is just going to be super de donkey. Scripture doesn't say that. And by the way, I, I would like to read to you uh, how Peter describes things. And Peter is a martyr, and you know he's heading to his martyrdom. In uh, in you know by the time this uh, epistle is written, First Peter. You know, he's well down the line in age and is a man who's experienced beatings, persecutions, jailings, and things of that nature for his confession that he is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And he's a man who uh, faithfully dispensed his duties proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the is going to be the judge of the world and that in him there is forgiveness of sins and all who call on him and believe in him have eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins. So Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll start at verse 3, uh, encouraging Christians, listen to how he talks, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and listen, kept in heaven for you. You see, Christians' hope is not in the present. Christians' hope is in the future, at the revelation of Jesus Christ on the last day, the day we receive our inheritance, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in this you rejoice. So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, biblical faith is trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life, and we trust them in the midst of and through many different and various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And here's the fun part here. You believe in him? That's the verb form of pistis, pistuo, faith, trust, belief. No, it doesn't say, and, you know, through, uh, though you do not now see him, you doubt in him. Yeah, you see, doubt, he plugged doubt in, and it doesn't make any sense. Though you, do, but the text says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him, you trust in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. Listen, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is what? Peter spells it out. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, verse 9, the salvation of your souls. So a proper understanding of faith, you know, makes it clear that our promises are not regarding, you know, you know, a, a hunky-dunky, easy life, Thomas Kincaid painting here in this present cursed creation. No, but the salvation of our to- souls and eternal life and the revealing of our inheritance in Christ on the day that he returns in glory because we are trusting him even through trials. That's how Peter talks about faith, and this is a guy who didn't buy into the postmodern bizarre notions that uh, Jason here is uh, spewing. We continue now. We ought to know better. You see, life itself should have taught us already that there are no single moments of clarity that won't be reinterpreted a million times later. There's no isolated decision of faith made under pressure even if that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there's no single moment that serves for the rest of your life. Life unfolds and gives us things in ways that makes us go back and deconstruct those single moments. It's more than a single moment. And there's the operative word, deconstruct. Yeah, that's a major theme and technique of postmodern philosophy. Most of us will eventually find the edge, and you know what I mean. It's the borderland. It's the place of wonder. It's the place where pat answers break down. It's the place where definitions, old definitions, begin to accumulate dust, and it no longer works. It's the place where... Yeah, what exactly are you talking about? Hmm? Give me an example of that. Yeah, the old pat answers don't no longer work. You know, like the old pat answers like, you know, Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Well, the dead don't rise from the grave, science supposedly tells us. So uh, we have wonder now. 
which is synonymous with doubt regarding Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave. Is that what you're talking about? Or, you know, virgins don't give birth uh, and they don't conceive, so therefore the idea that Jesus actually is the is born of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that what you're talking about, Jason? Where questions come fast and furious about which we're ashamed sometimes and we don't verbalize. But the trouble is, as many of us, find these questions young. Like Wesley and Buttercup, we stumble down the hill and we end up in the impossible place to survive, asking questions that we're taught. That's the fire swamp, in case you needed to know that. That's the place that we are taught. You don't go there. You don't voice that. You don't ask those questions. Those things are antithetical to communities of faith. And so we go... Yeah, by the way, there is something that the postmoderns kind of key in on. And that is is that uh, within much of evangelicalism, there is a hostility, and I mean overt hostility, to anybody who asks questions. This should not be. You know, Christianity has nothing to fear from honest inquiry regarding you know, the faith and the facts concerning the faith itself. And so rather than learning apologetics and learning how to properly answer critical questions and challenges to Christianity, many evangelicals punish anybody who dares ask a question and that is that is not what should be happening you know pastors listen to me you need to start studying apologetics if you do not understand it so that you can field these questions because shutting down or shaming somebody who's asking questions about christianity and the claims regarding the faith if you shut them down, you're going to turn them into atheists. They're going to believe that you're hiding something and think that you know that this whole thing is flim-flam because, you know, they can smell, and they can smell a phony, you know, 10,000 miles away. And so I think that's what he's describing here. Deep, deep, deep down inside, and yet something is churning, and we call it doubt. You might call it skepticism. You might call it disbelief. You might call it deconstruction. The unspoken assumption of faith yeah, is that deconstruction. I told you this guy's a postmodern. That it's airtight and can only flourish when doubt is eradicated. But I'm here to suggest that anyone who does not readily admit to questioning, to doubting, to skeptic. You know what's so weird? You think of the, uh, the 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 father who had the demoniac kid, uh, who you know would throw him in the fire and stuff, and he's he had come to Jesus's disciples while Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they couldn't cast the demon out. And, uh, you know, and Jesus, you know, when Jesus shows up, the kid goes into a full-blown manifestation of this demon. And Jesus lets the kid kind of roll around and foam at the mouth and do his thing and turns to the father and says, how long has this been going on? How, you know, and the guy says, well, since, you know, since he was a young child, it oftentimes throws him in the fire to or throws him in water to kill him. And uh, and then the fellow says something very fascinating. He says, if you can help us, please do something. And Jesus says, if, if, all things are possible for the one who, pistuo, believes. Pistuo is the verb form of pistis, which is faith or trust. All things are possible for the one who believes. And then the guy totally convicted says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's really, you think of it this way. Faith and trust are synonyms. Synonyms. Yeah. (laughs) Faith and trust are synonyms. Doubt and unbelief, those are synonyms as well. 
And this guy is doing the devil's work by trying to convince people that doubt is your friend. No, it's not. Skepticism and to wonder from time to time is not worth following. They're not worth emulating. Anyone who avoids your questions won't make eye contact when you voice certain things. Trying to convince you that they never wonder, that they never wonder, that they never question, that they never second guess or doubt. They're not giants of the faith. They're purveyors of denial, and it's not the same. Yeah, no, you're lying. And even the greatest apologist among us, they have wrestled through these doubts. And the doubts were not their friends. And overcoming those doubts with solid biblical answers and historical evidence was a vital part of their maintaining their faith. Yeah, you're mischaracterizing those who actually defend the Christian faith against the skeptics. It's not the same thing. Sometimes these people are too afraid to navigate the open seas of discovery, so they remain like a Yeah, this is just pure propaganda. Uh, See, doubt is the open seas of discovery. Hogwash. ...sailboat tethered to the dock, imagining what it might be like to sail. I'm here to tell you that even after giving the best years of your life, following this young Jewish rabbi, this social activist, this aggravator, this anti-establishment pacifist, I'm here to tell you that following this master of spirituality will often eventuate in a place where you will look back and say, did I waste my life? Have I poured my life out on the wrong person? Does any of this even make sense? I'm here to tell you that it's okay. In fact, it's completely normal to wonder if you've wasted your life on following Jesus. Now, if that's not a setup, I don't know what is. Here's my point. Now, he's basically thinking he's setting us up to properly understand Matthew 11. But in reality, he hasn't done any exegesis, and he's set up a philosophical deconstruction postmodern framework to somehow rework what's going on in Matthew 11 to make it look like it's teaching us the importance of embracing doubt when, in fact, it is not. We continue. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to wonder. It's perfectly acceptable to ask yourself periodically if this is really worth all that you're putting into it. Because the greatest that ever lived did. And the greatest among us still do. Now, a little bit of a note. He's referring to the fact that uh, John the Baptist is lauded by Jesus as the greatest man born of woman. Now, yeah, so you're going to have to think of John the Baptist as the greatest among those who were born sinners. But John the Baptist is a sinner just like you and I. In fact, he even confesses that when Jesus shows up to be baptized by John the Baptist because John says to Jesus, I should be baptized by you. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you you get the idea then here. So, you know, he's going to make a a lot of the fact that supposedly John the Baptist is the greatest, but John the Baptist would then be the greatest among a class of humanity, and that class would be those who were born dead in trespasses and sins and still had a sinful nature up to the day of their death. Yeah, that's the class of person that John the Baptist is in, and he's the greatest among that class. Jesus, the God-man who was without sin, he is in a class by himself. And among all of humanity, there is none greater than Christ. And understand this, Jesus is the God-man. 
He's both God and man. So fascinating thing there. But uh, just wanted to kind of tease that out a little bit because of what he's doing here. You know, he overplaying his hand regarding the greatest. Oh, you don't believe me? Let's look at today's text. Matthew 11, verse 1 through 11. We'll read it in tiny pieces. This is one of my favorite exchanges in scripture. This is where I can see through the junk and see the matrix of real humanity encountering God. Listen to this. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, now John is his cousin, okay, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, remind yourself, hang on. This is John, the cousin of Jesus. Something- now, real quick, notice this is an interrogative statement, otherwise known as a question. Uh-huh. And so let me, let me read the text because he's going to overplay this. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, yes, the deeds of the Christ. I love the way Matthew put it because he's clearly unambiguously saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He sent word by his disciples and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So he's thinking, okay, this is it. The, the Messiah is here, but I want to make sure this is right. So note, it's just it's a straight-up question. He's seeking information. So Jesus answered, go tell John what you hear and you see. And then he quotes, uh, he quotes one of the Old Testament prophets. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended, scandalized. Yeah, scandalizo is the uh, the Greek word there. Um, you know, it, it, that is not scandalized by me. So at this point, yeah, you can say John is uncertain that Jesus is the Messiah, and he wants to make sure that that you know his faith is well placed if he ha- if he trusts in Christ. And Jesus doesn't does not rebuke him for his inquiry, but what you know, but what he does, he points him back to uh, what the Old Testament says regarding the Messiah, and quotes. Uh, the Old Testament here, and John would know his Old Testament very well. And, uh, you know, and so he's quoting uh, Isaiah chapter 11, if I'm, or sorry, chapter 8, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, well, actually, he's referring to uh, Isaiah chapter 8. But the idea then here is, is that Jesus answers his question straight up. Now, what James, uh, what, uh, what Jason is going to do here, I forgot his name for a second, getting old. What Jason is about to do here is overplay this and turn this into something that it is not. But just a careful reading of the text, paying attention to the details, will keep us from falling for this postmodern trap that, uh, that Jason has you know, basically set for these people. We continue. Thing like six months older, right? born into some kind of a miraculous arrangement too, whose mother and father were barren. Holy Spirit comes and does the deal. This is John who's wondering. 
Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see to his envoy, to his little, little group of disciples. Go back and tell him what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is what happens immediately after last week's text that we studied where Jesus sends out the 12 for a limited sort of missionary short-term adventure. Remember the passage about how Jesus comes not to bring peace but a sword? Remember what we're talking about? Maybe the house of Jesus itself is dividing over the question of who the heck is this Messiah? Maybe he's alerting us to the fact that even his cousin would look at him and say, I'm really not super sure you're the one. All right, now, notice how he overplayed it. I want to back this up, and I want you to hear it again, because he's using kind of an interesting technique. Maybe. Yeah, this sounds like Adam Hushka. What if? What if? What if? Maybe. 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 But there's nothing in the text that supports the overstatement that Jason is making. Remember the passage about how Jesus comes not to bring peace but a sword? Remember what we're talking about? Maybe the house of Jesus itself is dividing over the question of who the heck is this Messiah? Maybe the the house of Jesus is dividing. There is no evidence textually that the house of Jesus is dividing. You're inserting things into the biblical text that are not there. That's exactly what he's doing. Maybe he's alerting us to the fact that even his cousin would look at him and say, I'm really not super sure you're the one. Yeah, again, overplaying the text. Fair enough. I get it. John is falling apart. John is actually serving a criminal sentence for a crime that he didn't commit while Jesus is out winning the Oscars. Shame on him for blurting out his skepticism, right? Shame on John. What terrible PR. Surely Jesus is going to rebuke him next. Yeah, what terrible PR. How dare he, right? Yeah, again, you know, John wasn't airing these out in public. He's in prison. And he sent word by by his disciples. So he sent he sent his the the men who were his disciples to Jesus with an honest inquiry. And note this then, John being in prison by sending these guys with this question for Jesus, getting the response with the death of John the Baptist, who then would John's disciples turn to? Answer, they would turn to Jesus. You know, so there, there's, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. Right? Let's read on. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? Now, this is, this is hearkening back to John's public ministry out at the the Jordan River, where he called everyone to a baptism of repentance. What did you go out to see? A reed swayed by the wind? There's nothing remarkable in that. If not, what did you go see? A man dressed in fine clothes? We know that's not the case because we know John wasn't particularly fly, you might say. No, those who wear the fine clothes are in king's palaces. Listen to what Jesus says next. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, listen to this, among those born of women, which is all of us, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
In John's moment of doubt, he voices to his followers that maybe this is not the one. And Jesus, instead of rebuking... Yeah, again, you're overplaying it. He does not voice that maybe Jesus isn't the one. He sends an inquiry to ask straight up if he is the one. And Jesus' answer is yes. By quoting the Old Testament, Jesus is saying yes to the question. You've overplayed this text him and putting him back in his place and saying, you keep that on the, on the alternate channel. Don't do this in public. Jesus says, this is the greatest one that has ever lived. Think about this. Think about why in the world Matthew would record this to begin with. Matthew very likely read the work of Mark, who probably wrote his gospel first and feeling that... Yeah, a little bit of a note here. Um, I, I think liberals and postmoderns love the idea that Mark wrote first, but the early church... And guys who were literally living at the end of the first century, they all said Matthew wrote first. Uh Uh-huh. That's what the church fathers say. The need to add to this and argue for the messiahship of this Jesus sits down and records this of all PR disasters? Why? Yeah, this isn't a PR disaster in considering the implications you know, uh, the answer to the question is yes, and G- you know, basically John is turning his disciples over to Jesus with that answer. Yeah, no joke. Why would, G- why would Matthew record this? If he's trying to build the audience to believe that Jesus is the one, that he is the Messiah, that he is the answer, why would you elevate this exchange? Why do you think that Matthew wrote what he wrote? We know the Apostle John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, Uh, which is eyewitness testimony, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Why do you think that Matthew would have any different reason for writing his gospel than the same reason that John wrote his? Where not even his cousin believes. Doesn't this undermine the narrative? This would never have made the editor's cut if I was in charge. How does this make him seem lordly? How does this make Jesus seem priest-like or prophetish or messianic? How does this accomplish anything? What's kingly about your cousin saying, man, I don't know. I'm not sure you have what it takes. Um Yeah, John the Baptist did not say, Jesus, I don't think you have what it takes. Again, the text is quite clear. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Straight up inquiry. And Jesus' deeds are the tip-off as to who he is. And John is thinking, this guy, you know, rather than this being doubt, I mean, serious. The deeds are matching up. He baptized Jesus. Oh, yeah. You see what I'm saying here? There's another way to read this text. And the whole doubt line doesn't really hold up under exegetical scrutiny. You know, I understand there are some elements to it, but simply asking a question. Questions can be asked in doubt. Questions can be asked because somebody's faith is waffling. Sometimes questions are asked for the purpose of shoring up and and, and basically emboldening faith. But see, the deeds of Christ were making John think, oh, the sky is the one, but but I'm in prison. And yeah, you see what I'm saying here?
Yeah, you know, sorry, but Jason's way, way, way overplaying the hand here in favor of super doubt and somehow playing this as some kind of a PR disaster. Nothing in the text says that. And the way he's characterizing the, ch- uh, the text doesn't actually fit the way it's written. Unless doubt was nothing to be ashamed of. Unless one- now, I'm going to back this up, and I want you to hear this. Since he's mischaracterizing uh, John's reason for writing, he then concludes, therefore, doubt is something we can embrace, and it, we shouldn't be afraid of it. There's the demonic setting of the hook. Listen again. How does this accomplish anything? What's kingly about your cousin saying, man, I don't know. I'm not sure you have what it takes. Unless doubt was nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. Wow. So mischaracterizing the text, we can now say that doubt is something that we don't have to be ashamed of. Again, doubt and unbelief are the exact opposites of faith and belief. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, wow, this is straight-up demonic, what we're hearing here. And I mean in that, that in the truest sense that you can think of the word demonic. Unless wonder was part of faith. Unless begging God for a sign was somehow acceptable. Which it is. Or this little passage would never have survived. I spent some time this week thinking about our faith and the trajectory of the people and the stories that we celebrate of our great faith tradition. And I just thought about if we scrubbed it of the doubters, if we scrubbed it of those who demanded signs, if we removed all of those who wondered and wandered and questioned from time to time, what would we have left? Very little, I would say. Think of the Garden of Eden built into ideal creation by the way that story is preserved and passed down to us is the built-in wonder. What happens next? What if we step outside? Right? It's in us to wonder and to wonder. Consider Moses, after making several excuses why he could never be the wonder. Yeah, you'll note that in the Garden of Eden, uh, the uh, doubting of God and you know, listening to the, uh, the, the doubt-inducing uh, narrative of the serpent, that led to the fall of mankind. Yeah, yeah, that's just kind of weird how that worked. You know, I'm just saying, you know, but what do I know? Yeah. Wow. To represent Yahweh to the court of Pharaoh, he begs for a mouthpiece. He says, what, what am I going to tell him? How am I possibly going to tell him that you sent me? Give me proof. Give me evidence. Think of Gideon, remembered in Scripture as a mighty man of valor, who twice, hiding, puts fleeces out to make God prove that it was actually his voice. By the way, Gideon is a great example of a man who wrestled with doubt. That doesn't mean his doubt was something we should embrace. But notice then, this kind of falls into one of the major themes of Scripture, and that is this, is that God does not snuff out a smoldering wick. You go back to that idea of the, you know, the, uh, the father whose you know, son is a demoniac. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Gideon is just like that. He believes, but, he, oh, Lord, help my unbelief. That's the whole story there behind Gideon. So, and you'll note then, the emphasis should not be on somehow the embracing of doubt, but on the kindness of God, even in the midst of the weaknesses that we have when our doubts arise and how God works to assuage us and work, work us past our doubts. Because in the story of Gideon, each time he has doubts, 
God gives him a sign, and that sign takes away those doubts, and then Gideon acts in great faith. But that faith is given to him literally as a gift by God of removing the doubts from him. Yeah. So, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief is a better way of understanding the story of uh, Gideon. What about Joseph, husband of Mary? How far would this ambitious plan to redeem the whole world actually get if the surrogate, earthly father of Jesus didn't even believe this was possible? His doubt becomes a nightmare. His nightmare becomes an angelic apparition. That angelic apparition becomes a change of heart. But built in was this, I don't know if this is even possible. How can this be? And then what about Thomas, the apostle? My secret favorite among the 12. For whatever reason, he was not there with the originals. When Jesus came back at first, he didn't see it with his own eyes. And he says something. Yeah, what about Thomas? I mean, that's such a great text, by the way, that actually works against you. And the reason I say that is because... Jesus, again, working with this, the, the weaknesses of sinful humanity. Even the best Christian still has a sinful nature. And our old Adam is not a believer. He's a doubter. Yeah, that's just straight up true. So, um, so Jesus is, is very kind. You know, Thomas says, I won't believe unless I put my hands in, you know, the wounds and, and you know, and see for myself. And so watch what happens. John twenty twenty six eight eight days later, so this is the next Sunday, uh, after the, the resurrection, uh, uh, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, and place it in my side. And here, here comes the important words. Do not be disbelieving. Uh-huh. Do not be disbelieving, but believe. Uh-huh. Put away your doubts, Thomas. Believe. And this is a perfect text to show that doubt and faith are antithetical. So Thomas answered, My Lord and my God, Hakurios mu kaiotheos mu. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? And then he says, Blessed are those who have not seen me, and yet have, what? Believed. The blessing comes not with doubt. Jesus says, stop disbelieving and believe. The, the, the blessing comes not with doubt. The, desti- the, the blessing comes with believing. Thing along these lines, nobody got up from the dead unless I saw it with my own eyes. Think about Thomas. Let's read a little bit in the book of John that records this story. Here's how John remembers it. John 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. I, sorry, but I wonder where would he, where was he? Interesting. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, I also think about that week. He says, no way, no proof, no faith, nothing's going down until I see it with my own eyes. And Jesus waits a whole week to let him stay there and just hang in that space. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Reach out your hand. uh, Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. 
Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Right. Stop doubting. Stop disbelieving and believe. God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have still believed. And yet this falls far short of a rebuke for doubting. Jesus often- <laughs> Sure, it's a complete rebuke for doubting because Jesus imperatively tells him, do not be disbelieving, but believe. That, that's a complete rebuke for doubt. Offers very single, very, very few human interactions after he rose from the dead, before he ascended on high. Very few. Scripture preserves this one for us. Special treatment of one who says, no way, unless I see it with my own eyes. He addresses his need to know with such tenderness and such comfort. Now, that's true. And it's very much akin to the way he handled Gideon and the father who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so the emphasis needs to be put on the kindness of God and the patience of God as he works through, you know, in us to work those doubts out of us. Where's the public rebuke? of this skeptic. You know, Thomas would go on to write one of the cherished gospels in the early church. Now, for whatever reason, in the fourth century, they didn't feel like it needed to be preserved. Yeah, now this is absolute, 100% proof this guy's a postmodern, non, you know, nonsensical philosopher. The gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic gospel, and I would remind you that the gospel of Thomas says that women cannot be saved unless they are changed into men. Yeah, read it for yourself. You can find it in the last part of the Gospel of Thomas. And it has never been accepted, never once been accepted as an actual biblical gospel. Yeah, this it was written, you know, written much later, and you know, it has Gnostic themes and Gnostic concepts in it, and it literally says that women cannot be saved unless they are turned into men. I half wonder, because I spend all my time wondering. I wonder if it by wondering he means doubting. Didn't preserve it in the fourth century because Thomas was the doubter and we all knew it. How can we preserve the writings of one who doubted? Scrub the canon. It of that. wasn't written by Thomas. It appears in the fourth century because that's about when it was written by the Gnostics. Let's let's leave that one out. And yet, the Gospel of Thomas is one of the most cherished of the first two centuries of the church. He addresses his need to know with tenderness and attention. Where's the public rebuke of this skeptic? Where's the demotion for doubting? Where, why is Jesus... Yeah, argument from silence, by the way. Just not threatened by his lack of faith. Maybe ancient examples aren't your cup of tea. Maybe it's too far in the past for you to make any sort of connection. I wonder if you're aware that for all but five months of Mother Teresa's 50 years of public ministry, she says herself, in her own words, there was no presence of Jesus in my life and there was nothing happening in the Eucharist. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. And keep in mind, um, Mother Teresa was a Roman Catholic. Yeah, they don't properly distinguish law and gospel, and they have a very elaborate and beautiful uh, religion that is a religion of salvation by works. For all but five months, or for fifty years, Time Magazine writes an article. It's ten years old at this point, but it's called Mother Teresa's Crisis of Faith. It's brilliant. You should read it. She literally puts on a public face, hoping that at some point the presence of God would catch up, which it didn't. There were five measly, lonely months in Spain where she felt the daily presence of God. The rest of it, she was lost in skepticism and doubt. What do we call her? We call her Saint Teresa. Let's turn back to Matthew 11. No, actually, I I don't. (laughs) 
No, that's what Rome calls her. And by saint, they mean that she went straight to heaven and she didn't. She got to skip purgatory. Uh-huh. ...and wrap this up. This isn't the first and only time that Jesus has a chance to go on record, uh, a public record regarding his cousin. There was a well-established connection between these two. Remember, the Pharisees didn't want to touch him because they were afraid that people would associate him with John and that it would come back on them. There was a well-established connection between these two. And John still demands proof. And this demand provokes Jesus to make a connection to the ancient book of Malachi. Verse 3, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what Malachi says. I will send a messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Here's my question for you. What happens right before the arrival of Jesus? And let's use that arrival of Jesus as a metaphor for saying any time that, that, that heaven breaks through your world, also specifically when Jesus walked among us, but let's just use that as an idea. What happens right before the arrival of Jesus? What happens the moment before? What happens right before he breaks on the scene? Malachi calls it seeking. It's otherwise also known as asking, questioning, wondering, deconstructing, certainly doubting, trying to scare up. What are you talking about? You're imposing your postmodern philosophy on the Old Testament and uh, the prophet Malachi. Some action, trying to make something happen. Malachi calls it seeking, but we know it as trying to get our head around it and then some consequent demanding of evidence. This is what precedes heaven stepping into our world. You say, what's your point, preacher? Here it is. In some very real ways, what makes us a community is not that we share the same answers. Now, hear me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Listen to this. It's not that we share the same answers. Now, hear me but that we are asking the same questions. No. What it is that makes a Christian congregation is that they share the same faith, and faith is trust. There are plenty of organizations around the same answers. They all feel sort of the same. You have to sort of believe and behave and sort of you know, buy in and all of this different stuff. What community of faith is something far more mysterious. What we are gathered around is the fact that we're asking similar questions. Notice I don't... No, imp- no, we should be gathering around the word of God because we believe Christ. We should be gathering around baptism and the Lord's Supper because we believe Christ. I that we're going to land on the same answers. I don't want that church. I don't want to pastor that church. That bores me. I'd rather teach high school than do that. Just little monogamous, monocultural you know, groups of people like St. Augustine Grass. What's the point of that? Right? We, as part of the global body of Christ, are gathered around similar questions. What are those questions? Yeah, no, it was the devil who asked questions. Did God really say? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And it was the devil who brought questions, at least that kind. What are the doubts we share in common? What are we wondering? What are what- the doubts we share in common? Again, this is utterly demonic. Well together. Here's one. What would Jesus do with five acres on South Lamar in Austin, Texas? What would Jesus do with this? It's easy to roll in here and roll out. This, we take this very seriously. We're engaged all the time in deep conversations about what do we do here? How do we put it into play? What would Jesus- We're engaged in deep conversations, man. Deep. They're really deep, man. They're super deep. What would Jesus do with this little footprint in South Lamar? 
Who has Jesus invited to the banquet table of his love? Who's welcome? Who's not? Who's in? Who's out? I don't know what your answer is to that. I can tell you that I wonder that. We wonder that constantly. We ask that question constantly. And generally, it's going to involve someone who brings you personal discomfort based on your story. And that is the point. What does it look like to be a people of faith under this administration who thinks it speaks for us of all things? What is it like to be faithful people of Jesus in America today? Yeah, sounds to me like he's an anti-Trump social justice warrior. What does it look like in Austin to be committed to building an ethnically diverse body? That's a hard one. That's a difficult one. We're asking similar questions. You see, ANC, as a community of faith, there's so many things we don't do well together, but here's one of the things we do. We wonder well together. We ask hard. Yeah, we, we wonder well together, man. I'm, does, your, does your church wonder well? <laughs> Sounds like an Oasis song. Wonder well together. We ask hard questions together. We'll actually ask, we'll actually verbalize them. People will be like, they get all flushed with, oops. Did he just say that? Did they just say that? Did that just come up? Yeah, that just came up. Because we ask these things together. We doubt, we seek, we explore, we deconstruct evangelicalism. Yeah, we doubt, we seek, we, yeah, I deconstruct evangelicalism too. And I, there's an, a postmodern bone in my body. But I deconstruct it with the word of God so that people will believe what God's word really says. Because there's a lot of people out there teaching stuff about what God's word says that doesn't, and God's word doesn't say or mean any of that. To see what emerges in today's context, what, what will rise from those ashes, we discover as a collective. And this collective wondering sets a table, and it paves a way in the wilderness. And Jesus is going to say, this precedes my outpouring. I think it's high time you were giving... Yeah, Jesus never says that anywhere, nor does he even hint at it or imply it. Permission to fully embrace that doubt that is germinating in you like a seed anyway. Yeah, so just embrace that doubt. That's, you know, that comes from the devil, by the way, not the Holy Spirit. You've just learned not to say it because you might lose your membership card to the church. I'm here to tell you, embrace that. Yeah, embrace those doubts, man, despite the fact that Jesus said to Thomas, stop disbelieving, but believe. It's there anyway, you might just as well. You might as well thank God for the work that doubt does by driving you deep into yourself, deep, deep inside. Yeah, I don't want to be driven deep into myself. I'm the problem. Deep inside of me, that's really dark and, and mucky and full of spiders. Where truth and transformation actually happen, where real change actually occurs, where work is done, where revelation resides, where faith is forged over decades of accepting and then wondering and then questioning and then accepting and then deconstructing and seeing what rises and then rebuilding and then retooling. Parenting is this. This is what parenting is. I sit on the patio of my porch every day to begin the day and to end the day with a generation who parented us very differently, wondering how are we doing this? We've deconstructed the Dr. Spock model of parenting. Some of you aren't even old enough to know who that person was. We're working to, into different paradigms and we're trying to move and shift. And I'm here to tell you that it's perfectly normal and it's perfectly divine. And it is wonderfully the point to question and break down and say what needs to arise in this moment. These are the struggles that shape us. And I would just simply suggest that they need to shape our faith as well. Jesus offers action when John's doubt 
comes to him through the voice of his envoys. He offers action, not rebuke and not scorn. He gives real transformed lives as the evidence that he is in fact the one. He offers us the same today. Jesus tells John to look at the poor, look at the deaf, look at the dead, look at the lepers. Ask those who are on the outside who are now on the inside. There's your proof. Yeah, that's right. Those dead people, you know, they were, everybody always keeps the dead out. Yeah, and they were totally, they're totally marginalized. You know, so glad that Jesus was thinking about the other, you know, when, when it came to the dead. <sighs> Unbelievable. There's the answer to your doubt and wonder. Jesus tells us the same today. Ask the needy. Ask the broken for proof. Ask those who were at the very tattered edge of life, who were brought back. Ask the poor. Ask the blind. Ask those who have a contagious disease and are made to live outside the city. Yeah, you'll note that all of that points to the fact that Jesus actually miraculously raised people from the dead, gave sight to the blind, you know, things like that. Uh huh. This is all really shorthand for ask yourselves. We're the broken. We're the outsiders. We are, we have been, we will be the unfaithful. We are the lost. We are the torn ones. We are the landless, countryless ones. We are the refugee. Jesus is essentially saying, Ask the community. Your answers are deposited in the collective. Ask the collective about that doubt. And so here's the hidden invitation today. The answers are deposited in the collective. Where does Jesus say that? I don't recall a single text where that's even like an option. I have no idea what you're talking about. Don't be ashamed. Voice that. Here's my promise. That doubt that you voice will harmonize with what someone else is thinking, and all of a sudden, community will arise. Yeah, it'll harmonize, and community will just arise and stuff. You have a biblical text that says that? Something will spark. Two things will come together. Things burst into flame. What is the rationale for gathering? Why are we even in this room today? I have no idea why you're there. I wouldn't get up to uh, go experience the collective of doubt. What are we doing here? I've got a whole bunch of things that I need to do at home. I've got things that could, that could... What are we doing here? Here's what we're doing. We're bringing the little spark of our own journey together with others to create a bonfire. This little light of mine, this little doubt of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Why? Because I need to be retold the story of my faith, which is that there are decades of doubt and there are weak times that I need you. You know, it's not clear in the book of Romans... In, in Greek, there has to be someone that the, word, the action word is tied to. I promise I'd never do this to you, but here's the thing. Action words have to be tied to someone, and it's not clear in Romans 1 whose faithfulness is being imputed to us, being given to us. Is it our faithfulness? Here's my suggestion. No, it is actually quite clear from the context. It's Christ's faithfulness that is imputed to us. It's only the faithfulness of Christ that holds us. Yeah. All we have is doubt and wonder and community. All we have is doubt, wonder, and community. No, we have Christ, and we only have him by faith. So there you go. That was a complete train wreck of a sermon. And uh, teaching people the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches. (laughs) Yeah. Jesus said, stop disbelieving, but believe. Believe. 
Yeah, Jason says, yeah, embrace your, your doubts. I don't know. Who are you going to believe, Jesus or Jason? I'm going to go with Jesus. How about you? All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.